0: Morning. It's good to see you all here this morning as we've come to worship the Lord together. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning,
1: folks. Good to see you all. Big hearty amen to Tyler's prayer there for the women and the moms here. Um, Both the joys and the sorrows that that represents. Um, Also, just, boy, I don't know if we could have sung a better song right before... Diving into this passage, show us Christ, uh, reveal your glory until every heart confesses Christ as Lord. But then also, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life that comes from John six, and that's a context where Jesus was saying some pretty hard things, and some of the people that had been following him bolted. And then Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, the, the disciples, He said, "You going to go to?" Where else are we going to go? Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so, um, this morning's passage might be a little bit like that. (laughs) It's kind of a hard word. Um, So, we are continuing our series through 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, The series title is Cruciform Living. So, cruciform in the shape of the cross. Uh, We're going to be shaped by something. We're going to be shaped by values, things that are important to us. And we're either going to be shaped by the world's values, or we're going to be shaped by God's values, and God's values are most clearly and powerfully embodied in Jesus Christ and in his cross. And so we need, as his people, to be shaped day in and day out by the cross so that we live cruciform lives, not selfish lives for our own sake, but loving lives because we've been changed by the gospel. So our savior our king, he lived a life like he he laid aside his rights and privileges. He willingly became a servant. He took on flesh and blood. He willingly became even a slave to the point of death on a cross so that we and our sin that was killing us, wages of sin is death, could be raised to newness of life, so he died that we might live, and so he died a death not for his own sins but for ours. He was our substitute, so that we might live. Um, the author of life died for us to give us new and eternal life, just like John three sixteen. God so loved this dark rebellious world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, and so um, if you hear nothing else, if you don't know that eternal life, um, I hope you get to know the Savior today, and we'd love to introduce you to Him. But His saving work, it's often sweet because, again, He's saving us from what kills us, but oftentimes it runs against the grain of our, our souls, So sometimes there's a real edge. It stings. Sometimes he steps on our toes because he loves us. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. He loves us enough to tell us the hard things. And his shaping work can be painful. Okay, I know uh, Tim Keller gives this illustration. I've actually never seen this movie, or I guess there's two of them, an old one and an updated one. Um, Stepford Wives. Okay, so there were these men in this town of Stepford. I don't know. New Hampshire, Connecticut, or something like that. And um, I don't know what the story is, but they kill their wives and then replace them with these kind of like robotic things. But basically, they look like these really nice, you know, submissive, like, do-whatever-you-want sort of wives, but they were not real. So the point that he makes from the whole thing is, do you want a Stepford God that never crosses your will, that does your bidding, whatever you want, If you ever do that, if if that's the way you try to relate to God, making him in your own image, then you will have no intimacy with God. You will have no relationship with God because you're just trying to be God. But if you engage in intimacy with the God of the universe, of course, I mean, come on, we'd be flattering ourselves to think that he doesn't need to to want to shape us and change us. I mean, it's the case in a marriage. Like if if you're going to, embrace intimacy, you're going to also embrace challenges and stepping on each other's toes. Um, but we're both fallible. God is not. We are. So, of course, if he's going to change and shape us, if we're going to have intimate relationship with us, we should expect that sometimes what he says kind of runs against the grain of our soul. Yes? Okay. So, no step for God. Instead, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. We'll read that together. Um, it's on page 958 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on the Pew in front of you, the black book there. Um, grab one of those and turn to page 958. And this is the next section up in our series through 1 Corinthians. Um, we're actually going to wait on the latter half because it has to do with uh, communion. So we're actually going to tack that on the end of the series because it's going to land on a first Sunday when we're participating in communion. So in case you're wondering why we're going to hit 1 Corinthians 12 next week, we're not going to skip verses 17 to uh, 34. We're going to just hit it later, okay? So this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) So... Is that just crystal, kind of transparently clear, we should just close in prayer and head off to brunch? Um, Probably not. What in the world is going on in this passage? There are a lot of questions that this passage raises. You probably had lots of them bubbling up as I was reading along, or maybe you saw the Friday email and read it over the weekend and thought, what in the world? why are we even taking time on this? Um, well, we let God's Word set the agenda, which is a good thing, because oftentimes the things that we might be tempted to kind of pass over, there are there's gold in those minds. So anyway, we can't explore this morning every question at length or in detail, um, but I hope to be able to show you that the central point is really clear. Um, Heard. One guy say once, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things, and that's generally helpful and true when you're reading the Bible. Um, So first, we're going to go through the whole passage and try to understand what was going on. We've got to go through Corinth to get to Wilmington, okay? Then we'll talk about what it means for us. So the outline, whether it's in your bulletin or on the slides, that's like going to be the very end. It's not going to take very long to go through the outline. So really, we're just going to go through the passage. That's going to take most of our time, and then we'll draw application at the end. So you ready for this? I'm, I'm going to pray again because I need help, and maybe you do too. So Lord, I ask again that you would show us Christ in this. He is at the center of this passage. As hard and confusing as it can be, as many questions uh, as rise as we read it, um, he is at the center of it. And so I pray that you would show us uh, your glory. Show us your glory. That is so appropriate. Your glory that you invested in us as image bearers at creation. And the glory that you want us to reflect in our lives individually as people made in your image, male and female, in marriages, in the church, in our interactions one with another, in the way that we worship you, even in the way that we raise future generations. So, Where this passage is going to cut against the grain of our natural sensibilities, would you please shape us by the gospel? Help us to be humble and receptive to what you have said and what you have to say to us this morning. Help me to be faithful. Lord, we need to see what is here. We need to submit to your word, not to human opinion. And so I pray that you would give help and grace and guidance. And that the net result would be more glory to King Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. All right, let's dive in. So Paul writes, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But, so here's the issue here. Here's something he really wants them to know. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then... Applying that specifically to a situation in Corinth, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Let's stop here for a second. First off, if we're going to get our bearings and know what's going on here, you've got to realize that the word head is used a lot of times, and it's used in different ways. So we've got to pay attention and determine what he's referring to in each case. So who is in view here? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, physical head, covered dishonors his head head. Who's that? What's that? It's Christ, almost certainly Christ. Do you see in verse 3? The head of every man is Christ. So if a man prays or prophesies with his head, physical head covered, he dishonors his head. Jesus is our head, speaks of authority. So it's also possible that he could be bringing dishonor upon his own head, Okay, you see that idea, at least down in verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace or a dishonor for him. Hold off on what that means, okay? but you see the point. It's a disgrace or a dishonor to him. So it could be both and. Um, certainly, Christ is the primary referent there. Okay? So why would it be dishonoring to Christ for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered? Well, again, we need to go through Corinth to get to Wilmington. And this was really clear to the Corinthians when they read it, okay? Like if I picked some letter out of your drawer and read it, I wouldn't get some of the inside stuff, you know, from your life together with the person who wrote that letter. And it's the same thing here. We're, we're reading somebody else's mail. Um, it certainly has application to us, but we have to understand what's going on. So in Corinth, pagan Roman city, men, as well as some pagan priests, would cover their heads to pray to their deity. Okay, that was common. So this would dishonor Christ if Christian men would worship Christ in a pagan manner. You see it? Okay, so they needed to be shaped by the gospel, not by their pagan past. Again, cruciform living. But also... This anticipates the main issue here in eleven two to 16. Paul is saying that for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered was for a man to act like a woman. Okay, again, if, if like alarm bells go off, just hold on. You got, we've got to just see what's going on here in the text. So look where he goes from here, verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And by the way, this is really exalting women. They can pray and prophesy in the assembly. We'll we'll get to that later. But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So her head, physical head uncovered, dishonors her head. Who's that? Her husband. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So her husband is her head though again it could also imply at least secondarily bringing dishonor on her own head if you look down in verse 15 if a woman has long hair it is her glory it's given to her for a covering and if she you know throws that aside it would be the opposite of glory it would be dishonor okay but again her husband head is primarily in view here so this brings us to one major question that has plagued interpreters over the years and years and years. Is this reference here to a veil or a head covering, or is it a hairstyle? (laughs) We have to do this, folks, if if we're going to understand what's going on here. So the Greek terms alone aren't decisive, okay? So literally, the terms there, two words together, the word veil is never used in this passage. So literally, it reads, reads, every wife who prays or prophesies down from the head. Is that really helpful for you? it's not helpful. So what's the down from the head? Is it the head covering thing kind of coming down over the head, or is it the hair hanging down? Okay, so there are decent arguments for both views, but the bottom line is that the point is the same either way. So we're not going to get lost in the weeds on that one. If you're really interested, I can point you in the direction of those who handle it in great detail. So either way, the point is, Something that's shameful, okay? For a woman to pray a prophesy with her head uncovered or her hair down and loose would mean that she was disregarding the social customs of honor and propriety at the time. So for instance, for a ma- married woman not to wear her hair up meant at best that she was available. And you can see how that would dishonor her head, her husband, right? At worst, it implied that she was a prostitute, which, once again, would bring shame on her husband, right? So she might as well shave her head, which was what happened by Roman law. If you were caught, a woman, if you were caught in adultery, your head was shaved. So dishonor on you, and it was obviously dishonoring to the husband as well. So Paul goes on to reinforce the point, verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head So let her cover her head, right? So Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, summarizes it well. He says, women can pray and prophesy in public, but they must do so with a demeanor and attitude that supports male headship, okay? Their husband's headship rather than undermining that, okay? So what they did with their hair or the head covering communicated something in that culture. Now, you may have also picked up on how the glory and shame, disgrace and honor Themes run through this passage. Paul continues to strike those chords. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, careful. Of course, Paul knows that a woman is the glory of God as well. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So both equally in God's image, both glorifying him, but there's a uniqueness because of the order of creation that the woman is also the glory of man. So Paul is grounding these issues in the creation order, which is why it was appropriate to read Genesis 2 for our scripture reading. So God created man and woman in his image. They both equally reflect the glory of God, they're equal in worth and value ontologically speaking, as far as their being in God's sight. But the creation order was not just haphazard or pointless. The woman was created after the man, from the man, for the man. Okay? Careful. So if we just go, like, if we have reaction against that, it's because of the the twisted, distorted abuses, not the original design original design is good. So she, as his wife, Eve as Adam's wife, for instance, was intended to bring him honor, not shame. In fact, that's what happens in the, with the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. She brings him good. Honor. Not in a slavish sort of way, but a beautiful queen to her king sort of way. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There was no helper suitable. Created the animals. Nope, not my family. Love the dog, but not my family. And then Eve is presented and he says, yes, she is my family. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So this is like incredibly politically incorrect. I know, but the whole point is that the roles are not interchangeable. Headship and helper are by divine design before the fall. Okay, we've been, we, we're the ones that have made them ugly. God intended them to be beautiful. In fact, I think the very reason why it's so pervasive that they, they are so often ugly, even in the church, is because there's so much glory and so much beauty potential. So Satan loves to set his crosshairs on that because he doesn't want it to be beautiful. He wants to just just besmirch and stain anything that's supposed to be invested with the glory of God and reflect the glory of God. So God intended this order to be beautiful, these relationships to be beautiful. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel's this is a difficult verse, okay? We could spend an hour on all the options that have been put forth over time. But again, without getting lost in the weeds, can you see the flow of thought? A wife should bring honor, not dishonor, to her husband. She should not dishonor her head. So she should not carry herself, especially in worship, praying and prophesying, in a way that gives the appearance of her being available or promiscuous. That would dishonor her head, her husband. And it would drag the good name of Jesus through the mud. Gives the wrong impression, right? It tells a lie. I mean, one commentator said that it would be like looking into a church service where all the women were wearing bikinis. you would kind of be like, what's going on in there? You know? Again, the cultural signals that were being sent by this. And it was a problem in Corinth. Well, what's the because of the angels thing? <laughs> okay, there are several plausible explanations. I'm um, not going to get into all of them, but I'll mention a few here quickly. Angels are the most submissive of creatures, and yet we will rule them. Do you know that we will judge angels? Okay, so and they look on God's design at creation, and also in redemption. Read 1 Peter. One, it talks about how the angels long to look into these things, the redemptive plan. Um, so honoring gender distinctions and roles in the church is cosmically significant. L- listen to 1 Timothy 5. This is stuff that we can like easily miss that's in the Bible. It's like, I would have just read right over that. Listen to how Paul reasons in 1 Timothy 5. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels. In the presence of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. That's maybe one way to explain why he says this. Or, just as angels looked on as God made the world, with this good design of male and female, husband and wife, headship and helper, so angels look on as God remakes the world He redeems and restores the world, and the church is the preview. It's the lead edge of that renewal. So if in the church, women and men are undermining that good by the way that they're holding themselves, carrying themselves, interacting, if they're undermining that wise design, then the church fails to display the glory of God. Okay, It could also refer to the fact that These women in Corinth were were maybe, you know how it says, um, you know, in heaven we're not going to be married or given in marriage, but we're going to be like the angels in heaven? So these women might have thought, oh, we are like free in Christ. We are, we're like the angels. So enough of this like gender distinction stuff, that's just like lower than us. We've gotten to a new plane. So Paul turns that misunderstanding on its head. Sorry, pun intended there. See if you're awake. And explains the very reason for the symbol of authority on her head is because of the angels. So anyway, whatever it is, he sends an unmistakable message that, no, you're not like the angels. You should embrace and honor God-given distinctions, gender distinctions. So listen, Paul is no chauvinist. He wants to balance what he said. He's grounding it in creation, not in the fall. This is not endorsing, you know, the ugly distortions and perversions, you know, chauvinism or whatever. He's balancing what he said and ensuring that the Corinthians don't take it too far. Look at where he goes in verse eleven, because you know, pointing to creation, the fact that Eve was. Made from Adam or for Adam could really be open to abuse, right? So he writes in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, okay, Lord Jesus at the center, shaping us individually and relationally, corporately. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So there's no inferiority in women. We are mutually interdependent. And then he draws his argument to a close by appealing to their sensibilities. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. This could really be open to abuse or misunderstanding. What does Paul mean when he says, Does not nature itself teach you? It probably means something like, Does not the very nature of things, okay, like according to their norms and customs, doesn't that lead you to these conclusions? Don't you have the sense that this isn't right, that it's a disgrace? For him as a man or her as a woman to throw off these symbols and you know, for a woman to give the impression, to, to give the wrong signals. For a man to act like a woman or a woman to act like a man, like judge for yourselves, doesn't that, don't you see? Now listen, if this was Paul's only argument, then We might have a bone to pick with him here, okay? But when when people are sometimes shaped too much by something that is very normal in the world they live in, but very much out of step with God's wise and loving design, sometimes giving some examples and kind of awakening their gut reaction can be really helpful. For instance, I'm going to try to do it right now. Isn't it ironic that in homosexual relationships there is typically a leader and typically a follower or a, or a more passive partner i'm i know i'm speaking in generalities but i'm doing it for the sake of the point a more assertive type a more submissive type so isn't that ironic that the very people who are so vehemently opposed to more traditional roles end up reinforcing them in their practice do do you see how i'm just saying judge for yourselves like do you see it I know that's a generalization. I know it has exceptions. But it's common enough for you to go, hmm, because you've seen it. To to share it in order to get you to think. And that's what Paul's doing here. Especially, I share that one, because it's just the air we breathe. People have bought into the narrative of the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ agenda. Now, we can't go off and get hung up on, well, how short is short enough for men, and how long is long? Because that would actually miss the point as far as hair length. Again, let me quote Tom Schreiner. He keeps the the main point when he says, nature teaches then in the sense that the natural instincts and psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular cultural situations. Thus, a male instinctively and naturally shrinks or should shrink away from doing anything that his culture labels as feminine. And and we're not talking about hyper-masculinity and, you know, if you're really a man, you have to hunt and do MMA. Watch MMA. But even if that's the case, this is not untrue here. So thus a male instinctively and naturally shrinks away, should shrink away from doing anything that his culture labels as feminine. So two females have a natural inclination to dress like women rather than men, at least they ought to. Okay, so a rejection of gender roles and distinctions is not... A good saying. It dishonors God's created order. And then, verse 16 if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, here we go. If this was the only argument, you might really get annoyed with Paul. Because it could sound like, hey, this is the only way things are done, so get with the program. But it's not the only argument, it's simply the way that Paul closes a multifaceted argument. And notice, do you notice how this is a bookend argument? Look at how he opened this section. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That probably was a meaningful commendation to them, maybe more so than it would be to us today. And so the concluding argument is weightier than it might be to our ears. Does that make sense? So, It is possible that Paul was playing their own game with these last two points. So, Stoics, you know, the philosophers at the time, often argued from nature. And the skeptics often argued from customs. So, Paul could have been seeking to persuade them by reasoning from every angle that they were used to. You see that? So, the bottom line, again, big picture bottom line, women, don't pray or prophesy in the church, looking in a way that creates gender confusion or dishonors your husband, your head. And back to verse three, everyone has a head, even Christ. We must honor God's wise and loving creation design, not undermine it, okay? Which, okay, we've, we've walked through the passage. Now let's consider some application for us. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, must honor God's wise and loving creation design. We must not undermine it. Okay, now, does this all mean that Christian women can't have short hair? Like, if you've got short hair, you're kind of like shrinking down in your seat or something like, oh no, someone's gonna hit me with a ruler on the way out, you know? And or are we trying to go back to the 50s, crew cuts for all the guys, we're setting up, you know, in room 152? Does this mean, more seriously, that women going through chemo have to wear a long wig? Does this mean that women in sub-Saharan Africa have to grow their hair out long? No. The symbols change from culture to culture, but the substance of the passage is universally true and applicable. So just take clothing to give an example of this. It doesn't take long to think how sensibilities are culturally conditioned, okay? So, and and yet, and yet, and yet, there's still a universal sense. Unfortunately, in some places, it's, it's being eroded. A universal sense of manhood and womanhood, even where the symbols are vastly different. So if I wore a skirt to church today, and I'm not being silly with this, I would be violating this passage. But there are men that went to church several hours ago in Scotland that didn't. And they were wearing basically a skirt, (laughs) a kilt. If I wore a dress, big problem. But to wear a flowing robe in certain Middle Eastern contexts would be exactly the custom for men. So, Paul had to talk about head coverings or hairstyles, depending on which way we go on it, because that's what sent those messages at the time. That's the issue that was on the front burner for the Corinthian church. So he would have talked about some other item or symbol had, it been, had he been addressing the same issues in another time and place in culture. So just think about it this way. Again, thought experiment, ima- experiment. imagine a culture where a head covering was common for women, prostitutes or pagan priestesses. On the basis of this, to push those women to follow the symbol would miss the point entirely, do you see? You would would follow the symbol and miss the substance. So we need to embrace the unchanging substance of Paul's point as well as see how the symbols can change. So how about this? What if I slipped off my ring before church each Sunday and started talking a lot about how we're one in Christ Especially in an over friendly way with some of the women, like, whoa, don't do that with that symbol. But we're one in Christ. We should we should express that oneness and intimacy. Or like, oh, you're oh, what are you doing? That would dishonor Beth and Christ. You see how one in Christ could get weird. Well, I think probably. What was happening in Corinth is the Corinthians taking something that Paul taught elsewhere, Galatians 3.28, and misinterpreting it in its application. Do you remember when he said, um, listen to Galatians 3, "...for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female." For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that headship and helper roles are like a thing of a prior age? Regressive? No. By that reasoning, slaves could relate to their masters as equals in the first century. Because there's neither slave nor free. So I'm not going to be your slave anymore. I'm just going to relate to you as an equal. A believing, like a believing employee and a believing employer in that first century were equal before God in worth, but they had different roles. The different roles doesn't undermine the fact that they're both worth the same in God's sight. In fact, listen to how Paul also says, 1 Timothy 6.1, "...let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled." Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Do you see that? See the parallel? There's no, neither slave nor free. And be a good servant. So, the whole point of Galatians is they're all heirs together there's no second-class citizenship in the kingdom. doesn't mean there's no longer any roles. And same men and women in marriage in the church. So this passage is very relevant in our day and age. There has been pushback on the roles ever since the garden. In fact, everything went wrong over mess with the roles. Adam's passivity and failure He was supposed to protect that sacred space. And instead, he passively sat by. And why did Satan attack the woman? Adam was created, given the moral governance. He was supposed to be the head, protector. And the lowest of the creatures attacks her because Satan's design was to do this. And then you have all this mess as a result, you know, God comes down and has to bring the consequences to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So you will want to usurp his role and he will throw his weight around and dominate you. And both the usurpation, that kind of manipulative or brazen desire to control is a distortion and so is the passivity or the dominance on the part of the man. And Jesus came to redeem us so that we could reflect the glory again, so that men could lead with strength and humility, servant-hearted, sacrificial, just like Jesus, be shaped by the cross. And women, just like Jesus submitted to his father, there's no inferiority in that willingly, intelligently, wholeheartedly, helper. It's a beautiful thing. It's a dance. So we also need to seek the redemption of the created order. We need to honor God's creation order and wise design in marriage, in the church. Jesus teaches us to do so by his teaching and by his life. He honored his head in coming to earth That did not mean he was inferior to the Father. He was co-equal. He is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that equality with God a thing to be held onto for his own advantage, but he set it aside for our sake and became a servant. John 6, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus teaches us to honor the creation order. Bethel, we cannot afford to be shaped by the prevailing winds and opinions of the culture in which we live. They're gonna just keep shifting so we can try to keep up. Doesn't mean we don't need to be sensitive to each iteration because we need to lovingly engage, but we need to stand here on this firm footing. We need to be shaped by our head, Jesus our Lord, by his word, by the gospel. Okay, so here at Bethel, we're not closet complementarians. Okay, we, we believe in the roles in marriage and in the church. We don't want to be apologetic, kind of cowering complementarians, but we're also not mere traditionalists because sometimes tradition can be like a smoke screen for sin and ugly kind of patterns and such. So we want our traditions or our patterns to be shaped and, and evaluated by God's word always. We're not chauvinists. Actually, chauvinism and feminism are distortions. Okay? Feminism in, you know, if you're talking about like women's rights voting and some other things like equal pay for equal work, that's that's great. That's great. But we're talking about the agenda as far as leveling gender roles and differences by God's wise design. Those are distortions. So this is maybe stepping on our toes, but God wants to shape all of who we are. And it's not just a message for women. Jesus teaches us men to honor the creation order as well. So we should seek, if married, to husband and lead and serve in humble, sac- self-sacrificial, burden-bearing ways. Headship is not a right to be exercised for your own comfort. It's a burden to be born for the good of your family. So we should cultivate our character to serve and protect and bless and provide for women in a variety of ways appropriate to our relationships. So we've got to put to death cruciform living, our impulses to be served rather than to serve, to be a curse, like a burden and a curse rather than a blessing to our families or in the church. Put to death our impulses to be passive and to abdicate responsibility rather than take it on. We should put to death our desires to take the path of least resistance rather than willingly sacrificing for the good of others. So the church is weak on account of men who are passive and not putting those impulses to death. So we've got to put passivity to death, follow Jesus on the Calvary road of self-sacrificial, self-denying, other-centered love. So Jesus teaches us to honor the creation order. There's so many implications it could be internal for you, your own god-given gender, your own god-given role it has implications for parenting, it has implications for our church life. So you might need to do some heart searching. Do you push back on these roles? Do, do you just like does your skin crawl when you read passages like this? Or or do you even if it's hard, do you want to understand and trust God? and be shaped by his word. Well, not only does Jesus teach us and model for us what this looks like, he enables us, that's the good news, he enables us to honor the creation order. So his humble service can empower yours and mine. He, beautifully, he's actually the example for both of us, men and women. So husbands and men, if you want to know what godly manhood and headship looks like, you look to Jesus vis-a-vis the church in relation to the church. Women, if you want to know what godly submission looks like, you look at Jesus in relation to the Father. So wonderfully, he's the example for both of us and he can empower us and shape us by his grace. So his equality at submission can help us embrace our areas of submission. And men and women both have areas of submission submission without buying the lie that role differentiation determines worth. No. So let me close by mentioning how this passage is particularly relevant in one other way. So we've talked about our own hearts, our church, now in relation to a culture right now that there is so much gender confusion and the norming of homosexuality and even transgenderism So I want you to listen to this piece, or or kind of some quotes, longer quotes, from this piece by Kevin DeYoung, and he says this, the title of it is, The Two Things We Must Say About the Transgender Debate. This is so good, because once again, you'll see that the cross should shape what we say and how we relate to these issues. So the challenge with the transgender debate is that Christians must say two very different things at the same time. To those pushing an agenda that says, your bathroom is my bathroom and your gender is whatever you want it to be, we wanna say, this is absurd, patently absurd. There is no scientific reason, nor justice reason, no internally consistent reason to think we can be boys or girls just by declaring it so. In our saner moments, we know this, is, we know this to be true. No one would allow me to become, quote unquote, Asian or African American, even if I thought that's who I was deep down. There are facts about my biology that cannot be denied. Why is gender open to self-definition, while race and ethnicity are not? As many others have pointed out, the logic of our transgender moment simply does not hold together. Are male and female distinct categories so that we should be pushing equal work for equal pay and celebrating every first woman to do X achievement? Yes. Or are the categories completely malleable so that even the talk of binary gender norms is offensive? Of course not. He says he's moved, but... At the time of writing, I live in East Lansing, Michigan. I love my city. It's a great place to live. It's also a university town that tries to be at the cutting edge of progressive cultural trends, which is why the local school board has pushed for students to be able to use the bathroom of the gender they identify with. At the same time, when I go to the community center, there is a sign on the men's locker room stating clearly that girls should should not be brought into the locker room, but can accompany their parents in the family bathroom. So does biology matter or not? Is it a matter of safety to keep boys and girls separate or is it a matter of safe space to let boys use the girls' facility if they think they are girls? The idea that the whole world must accommodate my declared sense of soul, uh, my declared sense of self is soul-destroying, culture-poisoning folly and deserves to be treated as such. That's what must be said about the arguments and the agenda, but that's not all that must be said. There are people Men and women made in God's image who feel all sorts of confusion about who they are and what they want to be. To those struggling with feelings they don't understand and a sense of self that feels horribly unsettled, we want to say this happens all the time. Not necessarily with gender, but human identity. We all struggle to figure out who we are, especially in our growing up years. Sometimes that means we don't know how to make make sense of our own bodies and our own sexuality. We don't want anyone to feel unsafe in a bathroom. So let's figure out how to have more unisex single stalls. Let's provide well-trained, warm-hearted counselors. Let's make sure kids are not made fun of for being tomboys or for being sensitive or for being immigrants or for being whatever. And let's make sure we aren't constantly in full-on culture warrior mode. We should empathize with those who genuinely feel threatened, scared, or all alone. Standing up for the truth doesn't mean we have to say everything we think in every situation. It's okay to be tactful respectful, and even keep our mouths shut at times. Charging ahead with zeal is not an excuse for trampling over people. The Christian response to the transgender debate depends on whether we are talking about the debate or about a transgender person. I understand the two cannot be completely divorced, but they are not the same thing either. The ideas bandied about in public square are often ridiculous The people struggling with gender identity are not. This is what makes the controversy especially difficult for Christians. As a pastor, I need to shepherd a flock that faces pressures from a world that is trying every day to remake them in its image. But I also need to shepherd a flock that likely has sheep in it who wonder how they can live a holy and acceptable life to God when they don't feel like or simply don't like the person they see in the mirror. That means while we do not have patience for secular agendas, we must have patience for struggling people. We may be quick with rebuttals in the public square, but we must be quick with a listening ear in the neighbor's kitchen. It means we must show private care in a way that is not confused with public indifference and make known our public concern in a way that is not confused with private disdain. We have two different things to say depending on the context, not contradictory things, but complementary things. The world is eager to confuse. The agenda ought to be lampooned. The people ought to be loved. Do you see how both of those things require cruciform living? Because if you're going to speak up in our culture, you're going to have to put to death your fear of man, your fear of being socially out of step, your fear of, you know, all kinds of fears. And if you're going to care for people that are very unlike you, maybe you're uncomfortable, you're going to have to crucify your fear of broken people, crucify your visceral reaction to depravity, as if you aren't broken. So we've all got to crucify the stuff that gets in the way of us standing with Jesus and loving like Jesus. So we need help, we need a Savior, and he's mighty to save. So let's close in prayer and sing of his might and be reminded. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have blazed the trail. You so willingly laid down your life to give us life. And I pray that we would willingly deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you so that we can love well so that we can be shaped by you to reflect your glory, to not dishonor you, to not undermine your wise creation order. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen.